Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by Professor Shireen Al-Adimi to speak about the war in Yemen, the role of the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and even Canada in fueling this conflict. We'll also speak about the history which led up to this conflict and potential ways to put pressure to ensure that it is brought to an end. The only reason Yemenis needed humanitarian aid is because they were blockaded and prevented from, from trading. It's because their, their, you know, water facilities were being bombed. It's because their hospitals were being bombed. It's because, heck, even their schools and their homes and cars were being bombed. But first, please consider donating to the show by going to our website, theanalysis.news, and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Most importantly, get on our mailing list. That way you'll be emailed every time a new episode drops. You can also go to our YouTube channel, theanalysis-news, hit the subscribe button and hit the bell. That way you'll get notifications if you have your notifications enabled every time a new show is published. See you in a bit. Joining me now to speak about the war in Yemen is Shireen Al-Adimi. She's a professor of language and literacy at the Michigan State University and is a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. So thank you so much for joining me, Shireen. Thanks for having me, Tani. A few weeks ago on April 9th, we saw a positive image. We saw a handshake between the Houthi political leader, Al-Mashad, and Saudi ambassador to Yemen, Al-Jaber. So do you think we've reached a sort of breakthrough in this war right now? I think certainly the peace talks have uh, been very encouraging. Um, the, Of course, we know that um, a ceasefire was reached back in April of 2022. And so for about a year or more than a year now, actually, there have not been Saudi-led airstrikes in Yemen, and that's a positive development. That's what we've been asking for. One of the things that we've been asking for for so many years, and re it represents just a change, at least in the war. The war is still ongoing, but it represents significant change in the war. So I think the handshake, the meeting um, is certainly positive. I think it surprised a lot of people because it represents a Saudi recognition of the de facto rule of the Houthis for the Saudi representative to go right into the heart of Houthi control, which is in Sana'a, and to meet with them um, recognizes, I think, or shows that the Saudis finally understand who they're dealing with, and they're not dealing with just rebels as they've been calling them for the last several years, even though, of course, that's still, the title still fits um, in many ways, but they have organized themselves into a government over the last several years, and they have been the de facto rulers, and they control an area of Yemen where over 70% of the population, close to 80% of the population resides. And so um, I do think it's positive. There's still a long way to go before peace can be achieved, but I think anytime people are talking to one another instead of dropping bombs, that certainly is a development that we should be looking at positively. But do you think this potential peace deal would have legs if it doesn't really incorporate some of the other political actors who have been involved in this conflict, if, actors besides the Saudis and the Houthis? Uh, I think for a lasting peace, it absolutely has to include everybody. Um, there is no getting rid of the Aslah party or members of the GCP, GPC party, which is the party of President Hadi or former President Hadi, um, or the Southern Transitional Council, which is the separatist group, or the Houthis. And so there is no getting rid of any of these elements, no matter what people or how people feel about them. So I do think that a lasting peace settlement needs to include all of these parties. Now, the other thing we have to realize, too, is that the Houthis have been fighting uh, all of these factions alongside the who are in the same camp as the Saudi-led coalition. So the STC is only powerful because they are backed by the United Arab Emirates. The Islah party and President Hadi is President Hadi is not powerful, but like, you know, members of his party and the Islah party are only powerful because the Saudis have been funding them over the last several years, and they've been based in Riyadh for the most part. And so that I think we have to understand when, you know, the Saudis are speaking to the Houthis directly, they're not just representing themselves. In a way, they're representing also these other groups that they have been training and backing and funding and hosting in their countries over the last several years. Now, after a Houthi-Saudi developer settlement is reached, um, and if these foreign entities stop funding these groups, uh, and other groups, then I think there's hope for Yemenis to actually sit around 
the table with one another and discuss a settlement and reach an agreement that works for all of them. Because like I said, nobody's leaving the country. Nobody's just going to give up arms. Nobody's just going to give up their claims. And, you know, Yemenis have to live with one another. They have to reach some kind of agreement among themselves. And what do you think led to this particular moment right now where we're seeing, you know, more dialogue, we're seeing uh, different leaders and representatives meeting in Sana'a? What led to this particular moment? Um, so if you remember in early 2022, there have been, uh, there had been strikes in Sana'a that, um, you know, disabled Yemen's internet for uh, four days. No country has ever done this to another country, just outright shut its communication to the rest of the world. Um, and in that same week, there were attacks that killed um, 70 people at a detention center. So there was this escalation of attacks and it followed, you know, the UN not renewing this expert group, um, which was supposed to hold the Saudi-led coalition accountable for some of what they were doing in Yemen. So there were escalations on part of the Saudi-led coalition. At the same time, the Houthis escalated their strikes against both Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And for the very first time in the last several eight years, they were able to um, successfully, I would say, you know, like target some areas. So there was uh, an oil, oil refinery in Jeddah that was uh, hit. And there was also a facility in uh, the UAE that was hit and was not, you know, uh, rebuffed by the UAE or Saudi in time. So I think all everybody had a reason to, to talk to one another. The Houthis were not able to kind of rest Ma'rib, which is a gas and oil rich province, out of the hands of the Saudis and their coalition. Um, and at the same time, the Houthis, you know, the Saudis were not able to move forward. Like there's been a stalemate for several, several years. And now they saw that the Houthis were actually going to be able to cause some economic disruptions in their countries. So I think everybody was incentivized to actually sit down um, and come up with an agreement that's negotiated and mediated by Oman. Um, and come up with some kind of agreement that would work for all sides. And I mean, the Saudis, I think, have been exhausted by this. They have spent, by some accounts, you know, $200 million um, a, a month on this war over the last several years. Um, and to spend that kind of amount of money and to not see your goals achieved in any way, right? Like they weren't able to reinstate President Hadi to power. Eventually, they ended up setting him aside. Um, they weren't able to recapture territories from the Houthis. You know, what is, what, what, what is it all for? And so I think there's a recognition that, well, there's all this pressure from the U.S., um, Congress not wanting to support the Saudi-led coalition anymore, and the Saudis are seeing that this was actually like a war that they could not win. Um, the Emiratis, big question mark about their interests because they remain entangled in Yemen, and I don't think anybody's really focused on their role or as much focused as much on their role. Um, but I think at the very least on the Saudi side, there's an interest to extract themselves from this war. Yeah, um, the Emiratis are occupying an island just south of Yemen. Um, and I know that they have played a role in this conflict. But what has the role of China been, uh, given the recent rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which was um, in large part negotiated by China, but also by Oman, and you also referenced Oman's role in, in these negotiations. But what has China's role been? I think it would be interesting to see what their role could be. China did not sell weapons to the Saudis or the UAE. They didn't get involved in any way in the war. And I think Oman is one of those other countries, and uniquely Oman, because every other Gulf country and many other Arab countries and African countries joined the Saudi-led coalition in one way, shape, or the other, and one shape or the other. But uh, Oman stayed neutral and has been hosting these talks for several years. This is not the first time they've hosted talks. China worked with Iran and Saudi Arabia directly um, and reached some kind of agreement to reinstate diplomatic um, relations and whatnot. I think that's a positive role. Um, as for what they've done in Yemen, I would say, sure, any kind of, you know, any kind of peace talk or um, recognition of uh, res resumption of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia is a positive move and does relieve some of those tensions. But, you know, Iran's role in Yemen has been overstated in, over the last several years. So it doesn't directly affect the peace talks that have been happening between the Saudis and the Yemenis themselves. Although, of course, it does help that a major ally of the Houthis, Iran, 
is now, you know, not in conflict with Saudi Arabia. And do you think Iran's, I would say, economic isolation, as well as the backlash against Iran, given the protests um, a few months ago, does this play into negotiations at all? Are they are the stakes higher for them to see um, peace in Yemen now more so than before? I'm not I'm not sure what the Iranian intentions are. Again, I think that Iran's role has been overstated in Yemen. When the war began, this was just a few months after um, the Iran deal was negotiated with the Obama administration. So for Iran to risk the the Iran deal, I think would have been foolish. Um, there have been allegations by the U.S. that Iran has been involved. The Houthis have always said that they are not acting on behalf of Iran. There have been key moments where, for example, when the Houthis took over Sana'a in late 2014, the Iranians were very vocal about their um, stance against that takeover. And the Houthis were like, well, who are you to tell us what to do? And so and that was a pivotal moment. That is what kind of like set the spark that eventually led to this um, war in Yemen. And so. Uh, of course, they've been supporting them in some ways, but not to the extent that they would be considered a proxy war or, you know, not to the extent that they were supporting, let's say, the war in Syria. You know, there are no Iranian generals on the ground. The country is under blockade, you know, air, land and sea blockade for the past several years. Journalists have to smuggle themselves in to report from inside of Yemen. People are starving to death because there's no medicine that's allowed to enter the country that has been approved by, you know, or companies pharmaceutical companies have been trying to send, for example, or like aid that has been rotting in the ships because they're not allowed to enter the ports of Yemen or fuel that has been rerouted to Jeddah. And yet we're somehow, um, you know, these allegations that Iranians are somehow getting through all of these blockades and supporting this out. The Houthis have just been been preposterous. They're supporting them in other ways, just not in that way. Whatever support that they've shown for the Houthis has been minimal compared to the ways in which the international community has supported the Saudi-led coalition. And so I think um, Iran wouldn't want to risk. I think Iran, it looks good for Iran to show that they are interested in peace in Yemen, uh, even though the conflict itself has very little to do with Iran. It's, a, it's an internal conflict. It's a conflict between Yemen and Saudi Arabia, and it is a culmination of uh, you know, decades of intervention by Saudi Arabia in Yemen and decades of intervention by the United States in Yemen. So this is not an Iran, you know, Saudi conflict that's happening on the, you know, at the borders in Yemen. This is a Yemeni Saudi conflict that unfortunately is not even a war, has been just an asymmetrical attack on the country. Well, before we speak about the humanitarian crisis in the country, um, you did touch on the history a bit. So maybe to give our viewers a bit more context, it would be good to speak about how this uh, conflict came about. So in 2011, there was an uprising in Yemen, which ousted um, Ali Abdullah Saleh, if I got that correct. And he was an authoritarian president, and he was forced to give uh, power to his deputy, uh, Hadi. Um, so maybe you can explain what led to that and what people were protesting or uprising against and how the Houthis came in to take, uh, essentially to take power from there. Yeah, so Arab Spring, early 2011, Yemenis were watching what was happening in Tunisia and then Egypt, and it seems like the protests were leading to positive change in these countries. And so I think for the first time, Yemenis, for the first time in a long time, not for the first time ever, because we have a history of uprisings and revolutions, but for the first time in a while, in like three decades, they found that maybe we could... Um, you know, bring about change through these peaceful protests. And so in January of 2011, Yemeni started protesting. Now, they weren't necessarily protesting Ali Abdullah Saleh himself and only Ali Abdullah Saleh. They were protesting the entire system which Saleh used to keep himself in power and to enrich himself at the expense of the Yemeni people. Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East, has been for many, many years, and is now among the poorest in the world. Um, and yet Saleh was by UN, you know, estimates, um, one of the richest men in the world. And so, you know, where is this man getting his resources from? Obviously, there was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of um, wealth that he and his party and the Islah party, who he essentially created as a controlled opposition in the early 90s. This is like the Islamist party um, in Yemen. They were all part of that system that people were uprising against. Now, the 
movement was peaceful until members of the Islah party saw this as an opportunity for them to co-opt the revolution from the people. And even though they were part of that system and they were longtime Saleh allies, um, they became, uh, you know, they kind of took opposition. They went in opposition of Saleh himself and turned the conflict into a bloody mess. There was an assassination attempt. There was armed conflict. And when he survived that assassination attempt, that's when he agreed to transfer power to his vice president, Hadi. So Hadi was tasked with, again, nobody wanted Hadi. They say he was elected. If he's ran in a one-man election, that's not an election. That's an appointment, right? Um, and it was supposed to be a two-year term. It was extended by one more year. He resigned at some point and then unresigned. So he was just kind of flailing around over the next few years, not knowing how to bring all of these different factions together. Now, one of these factions was the Southern Secessionists who didn't even want to be part of the Union and hadn't want, you know, they didn't want to be part of the Union since 1994 when there was a civil war between North and South. Um, they eventually reorganized themselves into the current STC, which is, like I said, is funded and trained by the UAE. But, you know, they had legitimate concerns that weren't addressed. You know, the Houthis are a group from Northern Yemen who initially started off in the late 90s as um, kind of vocal opposition to Saleh's corruption, Saleh's rule, but also Saleh's very close relationship to Saudi Arabia, which was becoming detrimental to Yemeni society. And what I mean by that is that, you know, he, and here enters the sectarian conversation. You know, this is not a sectarian war, but the Houthis follow a version of Islam called Zaydi Islam, but they're not you know, a minority, 40% of Yemenis are Zaydi Muslims. And um, we don't have a history of fighting along sectarian lines. But what was happening in the late 90s and, you know, early 2000s, uh, actually early, early 90s as well, is that Saudi Arabia was exporting their version of Islam, you know, Salafi Islam, Wahhabi Islam, to all of these other countries like Pakistan, like Afghanistan, like Yemen. Uh, I remember when the I remember when the textbooks changed in school to you know and they came printed from Saudi Arabia. Now what was that? What that was doing? It was that it was an attempt to erase Yemen's rich history of both um, Shafi'i Sunni Islam and Zaydi Shia Islam. And Houthis, you know, they're a family of scholars and they had a representative in in Parliament and they were the, among the only people who were vocally you know outwardly speaking out against this, even though many people within Yemeni society did not like these changes that were happening. And so that put them in opposition to Saleh, who, by the way, himself was a Zaydi. So this was not a sectarian issue, but he doesn't handle, he didn't handle critique very well. And so he fought six different wars against the Houthis and was not able to um, kind of get rid of them. And in some of these wars, he enlisted the Saudis for help um, because he made the argument that these people are at your border and, you know, they're your problem as much as they're mine. So that's the history with the Houthis. So they became one of the groups then in post-2011 who were trying to have their voices heard. Um, you know, they come from a province that was severely underdeveloped. Like, you know, we're talking no running water, electricity in many parts of the province. So, you know, they had economic concerns as well, you know, and all of these different groups had their own concerns. And Hadi was just not, you know, bringing together people in any meaningful way. And that's what led to a lot of tensions leading to 2014 when the Houthis just up and took over the capital Sana'a and in an attempt to force Hadi into like doing something about it. Um, but I don't know if I've, I know I've spoken a lot, but I, but I also want to highlight a key moment that happened between the Houthi takeover of Sana'a in late 2014 and the Saudi-led bombing in March 2015. During that time, there were still talks that were happening and the UN envoy to Yemen at the time, Jamal bin Omar, talks about, when he writes about this in Newsweek, um, he writes about an agreement that was essentially reached between all of these different factions. He says it was, you know, 10 painful weeks. And he says, but it, the agreement essentially reached, the, you know, they agreed, the parties, the different parties agreed about the legislative and the executive, you know, kind of agreement that was supposed to work for people. And they were ready to sign the the peace deal. Uh, and only two days later did Saudi Arabia start bombing. So that was the context. It wasn't all out civil war. It was a lot of tension in the country. It, it was Houthi takeover. There was a lot of resentment. There were a lot of parties who were left unheard. 
uh, but they were still able to negotiate something. Now, we don't know what would have happened with that, but they were able to negotiate a deal that was essentially derailed by Saudi Arabia intervening in 2015. I have read about that, and I was wondering, what was it that actually made Saudi Arabia intervene in that moment, which you say was you know two days after this potential peace deal had been negotiated? Did they already have U.S. support at that time, or did they maybe think that they would be militarily supported and they were overly confident that they could push through their own agenda? I mean, they had uh, U.S. support on day one. So the day they announced their war, which was, by the way, in English from D.C., not in Arabic from Riyadh, they made the announcement that they were leading this war in Yemen called a decisive storm. And that announcement was made in D.C. And that very same day, the White House released a statement of support saying that they already created a joint planning cell. Um, that they were supporting, that they're not at war because that's illegal. So the Obama administration was very careful to say that they were not at war, but essentially everything they were doing signified that they were party to the war, that they might as well have been part of that coalition because they were setting up, you know, generals in the command room, supporting them with targets. They, of course, all of the weapons, most of the weapons that Saudi Arabia has comes from the U.S., um, and so from the very, very first day of the war, they knew that they had full support from the United States and the United States was very vocal about that. Now, why did they intervene? They've intervened in Yemen in the past. They've intervened in the civil war in the 70s. They intervened when northern Yemenis were trying to oust the imamate, the, um, you know, the father-son, grandson kind of monarchy that was taking shape and, and turned Yemen into a republic. But Saudi Arabia supported the monarch for the next eight years even though he was a Zaidi. So religion here didn't matter. They just needed another monarch or another ally. So when the monarchy failed in Yemen and we turned into a republic, we're the only republic in that part of the region, part of that world. You know, all of our neighbors are monarchies. And so they made sure that they had an ally in Yemen, a very close ally in Saleh. And when Saleh was gone, um, they knew that Hadi is a very close ally. Now, they knew that the Islah party would be allies as well. They don't think they were too worried about the STC. But the one group they certainly did not want in that agreement, in that power-sharing deal, is the Houthis, because they just spent the last several years fighting alongside Saleh to get rid of the Houthis and being really embarrassed by the fact that they weren't able to control this group who has not you know, backed away from speaking outwardly against Saudi interventions in Yemen or Saudi interference in Yemen. So... They didn't want the Houthis in power, and which is why they wanted to, uh, you know, what they said is intervene on the behalf of the, um, what is it, UN-recognized legitimate president of Yemen, which years later they had no problem setting aside, literally told him, woke him up in the middle of the night, said, hey, why don't you resign and transfer power to these eight guys that we support? So that was the, the plan. Now, the miscalculation happened when they thought this was going to be a quick two-week war, and they didn't realize that, you know, when you attack people, they fight back. And that's the calculation that they um, did not make very well. So what was the extent of the support of the Houthis in 2014? Um, and what would you say characterizes their group? Uh, I'm sorry, Allah is also the, the other name um, of, of the Houthis. What characterizes them? Like, what is their, do they have a specific long-term goal or, or political ideology that you think sort of engenders broader support or are they just filling in this sort of power vacuum so to speak and just fighting against the Saudi-led invasion and that's what's perhaps giving them some more popularity? I think it's a bit of both. Um, when when they took over the capital Sanal, I you know they were still some small group from northern Yemen that yes they had been gaining a lot of sympathy by the from their general population because, frankly, they were the only group that was able to stand up to Saleh and who seemed to not back down. Now, the southern secessionists, I lived in the south when the south declared secession from the north and Saleh responded by bombing us for the next three months until all of the leaders in the south fled and, you know, the south was forced back into unity. And so southerners, secessionists are looking at this saying, oh, wow, yeah, we weren't able to succeed when we spoke about Saleh. Your average Yemeni could not speak about Saleh without, you know, getting disappeared or assassinated or something. Like, this was a country that was under political repression. Um, and so the Houthis were seen as this group that was, you know, that raised armed conflict in response to Saleh's, um, you know, attack on them. Because they didn't, initially they were just speaking and he, he attacked and they fought back. 
but they still weren't anything significant. They weren't a significant political party or anything like that. Um, I think once they took over the capital in late 2014, people realized that they must have had support. Now, who did that support come from? It turns out it came from Saleh, which is very ironic here. They had been enemies for many years. But Saleh, even though he resigned, he wasn't like your average out of spring president. Like he wasn't assassinated. He wasn't kicked out. He wasn't jailed. He, in fact, remained in Yemen. He negotiated a deal under the GCC that would prevent him from being persecuted for any any uh, crimes that people were accusing him uh, of and remained in control over large parts of the Yemeni army. So when the Houthis were able to very simply just kind of take over, march over from the north and take over with very little resistance, people felt like, well, is Saleh just telling the army not to act? And that's likely what happened because when the Saudis started bombing in 2015, very quickly, Saleh and the Houthis joined forces and they were, he was able to mobilize parts of the Yemeni army that he still controlled and they formed a unified kind of resistance to the um, intervention. It didn't last. It lasted for a good two and a half years, but then at the end of 2017, Saleh decided to switch sides. He saw that this is not going anywhere and he thought maybe this is his second coming. And he decided to switch sides and within days he was killed by the Houthis. So the Houthis then found themselves in Sana'a now forced to rule. They did form a political group, an alliance with people from Saleh's party. And so initially I don't think they had any um, ambitions to, to govern, but that's the role they found themselves in. And over the years they've been, you know, like there is no security situation in Northern Yemen where they rule. Now, if these were a very small group with, with no political power, um, you would every Yemeni is armed to the teeth, right? You would see a lot of resistance against the Houthis. We don't see a lot of that going on. In fact, we see the Houthis working with many northern tribes to gain their support and their trust. Um, and so I think they've been able to do a kind of, um, you know, uh, alliance building kind of work over the last several years and have been able to fold into their group many swaths of the Yemeni population who previously would not have been uh, identifying with them at all. So they were seen as the people who stayed to defend the country. And that's why I think a lot of people support them in northern Yemen. Um, so if the Saudis and the UAE and the Americans were worried about the, you know, the support that the Houthis had, um, well, now they really have something to worry about because now they have a lot of support from the population, whereas before they didn't. Well, we can't speak about this conflict without addressing the United States' role in providing weapons to Saudi Arabia. And if if I recall correctly, they even the U.S. even sent in Green Berets at some stage in the conflict. And, you know, they've sent over $50 billion worth of military funds, you know, weapons and that sort of thing. Can you speak more about the role of U.S. as well as the War Powers Resolution of 2019, which was vetoed by the Trump administration? And which was recently rediscussed. I think Bernie Sanders was a bit reluctant and said that he wanted to speak to the Biden administration once more before putting it to a vote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So about almost sixty million dollars billion dollars have been um, um, sent from the U.S. alone to Saudi and the UAE between fiscal years twenty fifteen and twenty twenty one. So this doesn't count twenty twenty two. That adds up to about twenty two million dollars a day. And so we have that much in weapon sales just to those two countries. And then, of course, the Saudis and Emiratis purchase weapons from Canada, from Australia, from Germany, from Spain, from, you know, Italy, from all of these countries. Um, the other, Britain, of course, the UK. The other way that the U.S. supports the Saudi-led coalition and has throughout the years is through, um, you know, like I said, the joint planning cells. So they actually have U.S. and U.K., commanders in the command room helping them with targeting up until late 2018 they were refueling saudi jets mid-air so they weren't only just training their pilots and helping them with maintenance and spare parts and weapons and all of that and helping them choose the targets but you know these jets are flying mid-air over yemeni airspace and the u.s um was helping them refuel mid-air that ended with the trump administration in late 2018 so in every way, shape, or form, logistics, intelligence sharing, uh, choosing targets, weapons, every single way that 
a war operates. The U.S. has had, had a hand in operating. So now that essentially amounted to a violation of the Constitution. There's a um, 1973 bill that was passed called the War Powers Act, and it was it became federal law in 1973 when journalists found out that the Nixon administration was secretly bombing Laos. And so they found out that, well, actually, we should not allow this to happen. We need to make sure that war making is something that only Congress can authorize and not a president. Now, of course, we know every president has violated that since 1973, maybe not every president, but most presidents. Uh, but Congress never really stood up to any sitting president until 2019. And this was years of effort by activists in the making, where finally in 2019, a war power was passed um, in a bipartisan way, you could say, by you know both chambers of Congress. And it was largely seen by now by Democrats as Trump's war in Yemen. There was no recognition of Obama's role when we were trying during the Obama years to end this war and to hold the Obama administration accountable for what they were doing in Yemen. But, you know, it was easier for Democrats, at least, to see this as Trump's war, and um, they had the willingness to um, stand up against it. And, you know, tr Trump veto it, vetoed it, and we didn't have the two-thirds majority needed to undo the veto. So that fell apart. Um, but that was an effort to end U.S. participation in the war. It wasn't going to end weapon sales, because apparently those are separate transactions. But it was going to end all of these other logistical ways that the U.S. was supporting the Saudi-led coalition. Now, Biden's administration, you know, here we go, 2021, and the very first policy speech that Biden gives, he makes a promise to end what he called offensive operations in Yemen. So this random dichotomy showed up in the vocabulary here, which it turns out that neither was like... The Biden administration was not willing to define this for Congress, who was actively asking, hey, what does this mean? Uh, but not just that, but there's a, a government accountability report that came out last year that shows that the Biden administration itself didn't have a definition for what is offensive versus defensive. So it just, just said we're ending offensive uh, participation in the war in Yemen, but continued to support the Saudis in the exact same ways that they've been supporting them throughout the last couple of administrations. And so we see here an unwillingness to uh, break that alliance with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia needs the U.S. and the U.S. needs Saudi Arabia. Um, and no matter what somebody says to get elected, um, these are the commitments that they have to answer for. So Biden did assign a special envoy to Yemen, Lender King. And honestly, when I spoke to him, I met with him when he was here in Michigan meeting with Yemeni Americans. He sounded, and I told him this, I said, you sound like somebody who is a neutral, you know, party to the war. You can't just go in and think that you're going to make peace with Houthis who are refusing to meet with you and the Saudis when you have been a partner with the Saudis throughout these years. So the Biden administration, I think, does is not willing to see itself that way. Um, and so we have a lot of, you know, work to do still. Um, it was really disheartening when, like you said, Bernie Sanders made another attempt at a war powers only to withdraw it because, frankly, the Biden administration threatened to veto. And so he knew that it would be vetoed and he felt like he needed more support. And we saw an un unwillingness by many Democrats to now stand up to a Democratic president again. And many of them were saying, well, we trust Biden. He said he was going to end it. Let's just give him time. Meanwhile, the Saudi-led coalition was still getting a lot of support from this from the U.S., so, it, you know, people just start wars on a whim and then it takes all of these years and sometimes decades to end them. Um, and unfortunately, that's what we're seeing in Yemen. Right. Well, the, the U.S. continues to supply weapons to Saudi Arabia, but it seems like they have also obstructed negotiations in the past. I don't know if this was from the, the Pentagon leaks, but I think uh, Tim Lenderking, who you mentioned, the, the U.S. envoy to Yemen, um, refused some of the, the Houthis' demands, calling them maximalists, uh, when uh, Houthis were calling for uh, public uh, employees, um, civil employees, government employees to get paid because their salaries hadn't been paid out for right. years on end. And he seemed to just not think that this was worth negotiating and that it was a maximalist position. So how can the U.S. even be considered to be an arbiter or neutral in this conflict when they're still supplying weapons and actively obstructing some of the negotiations. Exactly. So, and, and, and let's look at what he's calling a maximalist demand. So when the central bank was moved from Sana'a to Aden in 2016, 
they were using the central bank to pay government workers in the south, which again, south is 20% of the population, 80% of the population lives in the north. And those 80% government workers were not getting paid. So all of these years, they were not getting paid. And the Houthis, as one of the demands they made is, again, this is not something that benefits the Houthis. This is something that benefits the average Yemeni. And they were asking for this average Yemeni to get paid. Um, and they were wanting to use oil and gas revenues to pay government workers. So we have oil and gas revenues that are being exported into other countries. And this, this money is being pocketed by the coalition or the, their representatives in the South. Certainly not the average Yemeni because people are still starving to death, right? 80% of the population is still in need of, of uh, humanitarian aid. And um, the Houthis eventually ended up in, you know, late last year when the president, presidential council essentially refused to use that money to pay for government workers. They ended up um, targeting those uh, shipments. So they said, well, you can't then export Yemen's oil out. And that's one of the very few times we've seen Houthi attacks in South Yemen since the war began. They basically gave up on the South in twenty um, mid-2050, July 2015. Uh, but in that instance, they said, well, if you're not going to use that money to pay government workers, then we're going to shut this operation down. And so the Saudis were actually willing to say, okay, fine, let's just use um, that those revenues to pay for government workers. And here we go with Lender King saying these are maximalist demands. And he kept repeating that term as though like this is such a preposterous position. Um, and we see, you know, McGurk showing up in Saudi Arabia and Blinken um, talking to the Saudis. And you're just wondering what is in the Pentagon leaks, of course. And so you're wondering, like, why is the U.S. trying to derail this? And frankly, it's been big business for the United States, like I mentioned. Uh, and the other thing is that they don't want to see be, seem like they've been sidelined. They're, they were already sidelined by China when China negotiated um, this, you know, return to diplomacy between Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran, and now they might be sidelined again by Oman this time to actually negotiate um, a peace settlement in Yemen. Well, you've spoken about um, how so many people have died in this conflict over, I mean, there are different estimates, but approximately 375,000 people have been killed in the war in Yemen over the past eight years. I mean, millions of people have been displaced internally, and some people have had to flee the country. And the media coverage of the war has been few and far between and of the coverage that we have seen i feel at least sort of misses the mark and doesn't really encapsulate the extent of the destruction and, and the gravity of this war so i'd be interested to, to hear your view of the lack of media coverage on this war you know we have a free press in the u.s and i and i have to remind myself that we have a free press in the u.s and i say that because um many mainstream sources have not behaved that way in the context of yemen um they have operated um almost like government spokespeople you know to show a side of the conflict that the government approves of to repeat saudi lines and u.s government lines very uncritically without really looking at the root of the conflict and when they reported on this conflict, you often felt that this was some faraway thing that, you know, oh, it's just proxy war or a civil war or all of these terms that were just thrown around with no critical, um, you know, examination of them uh, and no accountability for how the U.S. has been driving this war. Literally, this war would not have continued for eight years, maybe would have lasted a couple of months without U.S. support, but certainly not to this extent and not for this long without U.S. support. And yet we didn't hear the constant, like, why is the U.S.? You know, nobody was asking Hillary Clinton when she was um, campaigning. And actually one person asked Hillary Clinton when she was campaigning um, about the role of the U.S. in Yemen. And she just looked at the reporter and just walked away, didn't even respond. Like it didn't even, you know, didn't even feel the need to respond to this reporter. And so there was just no will to talk about Yemen. And many of us Yemenis have wondered over the years, what is it about Yemen? Are we poor? Yes, certainly we're poor. We have no representatives on a global stage who would stand up to what's happening in Yemen. We don't have all of these countries talking about like, oh, poor Yemenis are being attacked by Saudi Arabia. In fact, everybody was lining up to make money out of these defense contracts with Saudi Arabia and the UAE because they know that they have deep pockets, right? So unlike Ukrainians who were trying to flee the country and uh, people were opening their doors to them, Yemenis found themselves shut in. That's why you have 4 million people internally displaced and very little mention of any refugee, you know, um, 
Yemeni refugee crisis because people were literally trapped in and countries that were previously given visa, giving visas to Yemeni were, Yemenis were now no longer giving visas to them to even, you know, start off in those countries. And only the very rich and the very well-connected were really able to leave the country. And so, um, you know, like there was just, the U.S. supported the Saudi-led coalition instead of holding them accountable. Now we hear, you know, it's it's nauseating hearing what they talk about with Russia, not because it's strong, but because it's it's just has not been applied to the U.S. in the same way, right? Yes, Russia should not be attacking its neighbors. Yes, Saudi Arabia should not be attacking its neighbors. And we shouldn't be jumping to the defense of Saudi Arabia and helping them. Oh, you need weapons? Oh, you need logistics? Oh, you need training? Oh, you need spare parts and maintenance? Sure, we're here to help, right? That was the U.S.'s position. And you would imagine that, especially post-Iraq war, when everybody was trying to be critical and self-reflective about how did we let this happen, how did we let our government essentially lie to us about waging this war, you felt that maybe they wouldn't do it again. And here we are. They did just that. And they let our government wage war. Now, it looks different. There are no boots on the ground except Green Berets, like we mentioned earlier. Um but there was just a complete letdown, I think, of um, Yemenis and their rights to life and their rights to freedom uh, and a complete vilification of anything that was happening in Yemen, um, mischaracterization of the war as either civil war or proxy war, and certainly shutting down any humanitarian avenue. The only reason Yemenis needed humanitarian aid is because they were blockaded and prevented from, from trading. It's because their, their, you know, water facilities were being bombed. It's because their hospitals were being bombed. It's because, heck, even their schools and their homes and cars were being bombed. Um, not because it's there was some kind of drought and not because, you know, this was some kind of symmetrical war and they were inflicting similar harm to Saudi Arabia. You know, we talk about Saudi and UAE citizens who have been killed in this war and maybe you can count them on one hand compared to the millions of Yemeni lives that this war has either um, has has certainly affected through either starvation or the hundreds of thousands who have been killed. And it's kind of ironic that, you know, so much humanitarian aid has gone to this, uh, to, to helping Yemeni people, and yet there is a, a Saudi-led blockade on the country, and that's funded by the U.S. and by the U.K. and France and other countries. So it's almost like people are just throwing money at the problem, but the, the political will is really not there to resolve this issue because so much money is there to be made mm -hmm. so yeah and the humanitarian aid is a drop in the bucket compared to the need that this war has created like you know when you when somebody doesn't know where their next meal is coming from and those are millions of people in the country you know even with all of this humanitarian aid we see a child di dying every 75 seconds and so think about the gravity of the situation here wasn't called the world's worst humanitarian crisis for no reason, right? And yet, you know, you see the UN uh, thanking Saudi Arabia and UAE donors every time they needed to fill those pledges or US donors. Why? These are the people who have created this crisis to begin with. This is nothing compared to what they're spending to destroy the country. And they're throwing crumbs at the Yemeni population uh, as, you know, this charity, right? And um, getting thanked on a public stage even though they're the ones who have caused the Yemenis, by and large, to starve to death and to need this aid to begin with. Yeah, they're not making it possible for Yemenis to leave the country either. Right. You could talk about Russia again and, and Ukraine and some of the double standards, and I think rightly so. Ukrainians have been accepted by neighboring European countries, but the destruction and the, the terrible conflict in Yemen should also necessitate a similar um program, coordinated program, which would also intake um, people who are internally displaced, but also uh, refugees who are fleeing the country and, and fleeing this um, this war and poverty and devastation. And at least in the European context, that hasn't happened. I'm not quite sure about the U.S. context, but I would doubt that there is like a... Oh, it hasn't happened. No. It hasn't happened anywhere. It hasn't happened from Yemen's neighbors. Uh, it hasn't happened from all of these countries involved. Um, you know, I mean, our airports were shut down and our ports were blockaded and, uh, you know, they, they were restricting movements within and outside the country. And so, like, none of this, I mean, it just showed that human lives are not equal, you know, like you would hope that human lives are equal, but they're not because you, we see the response to the humanitarian crisis and the war in Ukraine. And we've seen the response over the last several years to what's happened in Yemen and, frankly, other um, countries as well, not just Yemenis, but I think Yemen represents the most egregious because of 
how widespread this conflict is within months of the war. I remember reading a quote from the um, the head of the ICRC at the time, I believe, and he said, Yemen in five months looks like Syria in five years, right? That's how widespread the destruction was right away, right off the bat, in the first few months of the Obama administration getting involved in this. That's how widespread humanitarians were telling us that this is how widespread the destruction is across the country. And yet the international community decided to just let it happen um, to try to like, you know, uh, throw money here and there at the crisis and not really think about why is this happening? We need to stop this immediately. We cannot stand for our government supporting this war and making so much money out of the misery, you know, from the misery of Yemenis. One last question. You did speak about the press and how you were disappointed in the American press because they, I don't want to generalize, but the majority of the mainstream press has essentially served as corporate shills for defense contractors for um, Biden administration, Trump administration. They haven't really held them to account and to put pressure on them for, for ending this war. So do you see certain potential positive changes coming about from the press shifting its role? Or do you think civil society needs to put more pressure on the government for that to happen? Yeah, I don't see the press all of a sudden changing. Um, some notable ex exceptions, I would say, are, um, you know, Nama Al-Bagir is a CNN reporter who's of Sudanese origin, and she literally smuggled herself into northern Yemen and was the very first um, um, in, you know, mainstream press to talk about the blockade so openly because they didn't want to call it a blockade even. Lender King was denying the blockade even existed, right? Now we're seeing a muh. I mean, it's just, it feels like we've been gaslit the last several years, Yemeni Americans and Yemenis, and we feel like we've been gaslit because, you know, like now as part of the agreement with the Saudis and the Houthis, the Saudis have lifted the blockade off of South Yemen. What is there to lift if there is no blockade, right? Like, so they've apparently always acknowledged that there's a blockade, but they've spent all of this time, you know, mincing words and saying, no, it's not, there's some restrictions and we, you know, we check for cargo and whatnot. Uh, and there's an arms embargo, but like, you know, it's been a blockade since 2015, and um, we see in that report from from Nama um, this you know humanitarian crisis that was unfolding and the role of the United States in supporting this war. But that's you know far and few between examples that we talk about in mainstream sources. Now, non-mainstream forces have been all over this issue, and it's been great um, and very critical. But I do think civil society, you know, we have to care about this war. Just because there are no boots on the ground, it doesn't mean that the U.S. is not involved in a war. You know, why would Congress, bipartisan in a bipartisan way, approve and vote for a measure that directs the president to end hostilities in Yemen if there are no hostilities in Yemen carried out by the United States? Like, that makes no sense. We have these lawmakers who all agreed that, yes, actually, the U.S. isn't illegally involved in Yemen. We should stop them. And yet the average person here in the U.S., doesn't really recognize Yemen as uh, as an ongoing war, right? And now I see there's even less of an incentive to do anything about it because there's a sense, well, well, Yemenis and the Houthis and the Saudis are talking to one another, and so the war is going to end. Like, why should we bother with a war powers resolution? And I do think we should bother with a war powers resolution because, frankly, it doesn't have it doesn't matter what's happening on the ground. It matters what we allow our sitting president to do or not do. And that's the very least Congress can do to, is to just re reinstate its authority over this thing that the Constitution allows them or gives them the authority to do. Now, if the war, you know, if the peace talks break down and Saudi Arabia begins bombing tomorrow, who knows? But we need to send a strong message that whatever happens, the U.S. is not going to be supporting them in this war in this way anymore. Um, so I do think that pressure needs to remain here in civil society and also in countries where sure, maybe they're like the UK is a big partner of this war, uh, but countries like Canada, for example, have benefited from, um, you know, the biggest arms deal was negotiated under the Harper government, but, you know, Trudeau's government saw it through and they've always made the case that, well, we can't back from a deal. But, you know, all of these legal scholars are saying, actually, you can back away from a deal that, you know, is involved in, um, you know, killing innocent humans, right? Innocent people. And so we need to hold our own governments accountable for our own role. Um, Yemenis, you know, they don't want charity. They want accountability. We need reparations and we need people to just let Yemenis be and let them resolve their own issues. None of this would have happened if Yemenis were allowed to actually enact the peace deal that they had were more than capable of making in 2015 or more than capable of making in 2023.
Well, thanks for driving that message home. I think it's really important for people to know what's currently going on and, and how you know various powers such as the US, Canada, Great Britain have been involved in this conflict and have pretended to not be involved have had a very sort of hands-off approach or have actively derailed negotiations. This has been shown by some of the recent leaks. Um, so I hope to have you on again, Shireen Aladimi, to speak about Yemen. Hopefully there'll be some more positive developments in the very near future. I hope so too. I hope we're not talking about war anymore when we talk. I hope so. Maybe we could speak about Yemenese culture or, or something more positive. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> That'd be great. Well, thank you for watching TheAnalysis.News. If you're in a position to donate, please do go to the website, TheAnalysis.News, and hit the Donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Get on the mailing list so you don't miss any future episodes. And please also go to our YouTube channel, TheAnalysis-News. Hit the bell and the subscribe button. And see you next time. Mm -hmm.